You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Nadal, who is using Flask and Python to power a sales slash CRM tool for real estate property developers. Nadal, welcome to the show. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about your tool? Um, so I'm a full stack engineer. I come from, a, I have an AI background and I run a digital agency based in Dubai and in Berlin in Germany. Um, so I have clients from different backgrounds, such as publishing, media, real estate, hospitality, and nonprofit organizations. Um, and I work on a variety of projects using a variety of languages and technologies. So the, this tool I launched recently, uh, I, I have already de developed this tool maybe a few months or maybe one year ago. Some of my clients, they wanted to be able to sell properties simultaneously in real time. And they had a problem with the conflicts that happen when they sell properties. So for example, if there are multiple agents are selling property and since they are using Excel sheets, they are not aware if someone has already made a sale or this unit is still available. So initially I created the simple tool that will block the units and refresh the state of sales across devices. So it solves this conflict of sale. And later on, I I extended this tool with more features like automating the generation of sales agreements, sales offers, and added some permission control system and different groups. So it turned into like a mini uh, CRM tool. And now I decided to launch it and maybe find more clients that could be interested in this tool. Nice. So as for this tool here, how long do you think it took you to develop it? If you just had like a high level of guess. Mm, I would say it was developed really quickly because I already had like most of the things figured out. I didn't run much into some bottlenecks or into bugs. So I would say maybe around a couple of months. Okay. So a couple of months for the initial development, but as of right now today, like how long has it been up and running for in production? Uh, it's been running in production for a few months as well. I mean, since I launched it initially, there was an initial tool that was used in the past, but it was really a limited tool just to with the limited features. But this new one is actually in production for a few months and it's being used heavily by the sales team of a few companies now in Dubai. Nice. So you do have a couple of clients using this as their primary way to manage uh, real estate properties, I guess, right? Yes. And that's actually one of the uh, nice things about this um um, application is that it came from a problem already so my clients already communicated their problem with me and I decided to build this tool for them so normally many people who build on ideas they they struggle to find the clients but this one is already a validated problem and it was easier to launch because I already have someone who who's willing to pay for it right yeah it's always dangerous being the pioneer for a new problem that's like hasn't been solved yet mm-hmm so going back to this app here, uh, you did mention that you are using Flask and Python to build this. What was your motivation for using that in the end? Um, well, actually, I worked with many frameworks and technologies in the past. I think if, if we take all the, if we compare all the, all the technologies that we've had in the past, like I started with a background in PHP and I used many of the PHP frameworks and systems. 
you know, like I feel that this whole uh, technologies, they evolve eventually to become more simple and more efficient and easier to use and everything. Like in my opinion, I think this flask, they have, uh, it has the best uh, architecture based on the, its simplicity. It's so easy to use. It's so easy to understand. It's so easy to build on. That was actually one of the main decisions. And I think that when you have something really simple, you can really build quickly and you can, you, you can quickly fix bugs. You can quickly understand the code and add more features. And plus, I think there is no compromise on the, like, even though people think it's a small framework, but I think it has no trade-offs on the performance or other things. So you can really build some large-scale applications and go with, uh, like, really important uh, systems with it. So, so that was, I think, the, my motivation. I think it's one of the most beautiful, like, uh, design system ever created. So if, if you want to dis dis build a framework in the nicest possible way, I think this is how you should build it. <laughs> and I think that's the reason why many new frameworks in other languages are following the same principle. So you can find like very Flask inspired frameworks in Go language, for example, or in Node.js or in Rust or other technologies. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's one of those things where it's like Flask is that perfect level, right? It's like just enough control to do what you want, but it still gives you enough to get you going fast. Like you don't have to worry about like super low level details. Exactly. So when it comes to this app itself, do you recall maybe a couple of packages that are really interesting that you use that really helped you build your app quickly? I used Vue.js um, as a front end uh, user interface library with alongside with the Vuetify. And I was amazed how like it helps really a lot with building interfaces and um, things like uh, backend management of things. Um, I used MongoDB on the backend and I think um, the decision was really, I mean, I know many people, they would argue that uh, schemeless databases maybe are not the best way to go. But for, in my case, I was just prototyping initially and I think it was really flexible so you can simply don't worry much about uh, database migrations i used some uh, i i used the xhtml to pdf library to generate reports i think it's pretty good it's really fast and right. uh, yeah so i think these are some of the and plus um there are some languages that are always in my stack by default like um things like celery and redis that i use them for different Okay. What about like specific Python or Flask libra libraries? Do you use something like Flask login to deal with authentication or something else? Um, so I actually, I, I have created like an opinionated Python framework based on Flask and I call it Inferno. This is simply like, um, like a Flask. You could think about it as a Flask template with already pre-configured uh, libraries. And those libraries are... For example, the user authentication, like of Flask security, and uh, there are other things like caching. So uh, I have Flask caching built in. I have Celery for background tasks and things that are needs to be regularly executed. So um, I have already collected these things, and I have like a pre-configured version, which is really easy to set up. So you just simply clone it and just run a few commands and you have everything already ready to be used. Yeah, it's definitely nice to have one of those starter projects, like an app skeleton that you can just base a new project off of. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
Now, you mentioned you are using MongoDB here. Does that mean then you're not using SQL Alchemy anywhere? Um, yeah, I'm not using it. Although if, I've, if, if it's up to me to rewrite this, maybe I would just uh, switch to Postgres or something similar. But uh, I mean, MongoDB, I didn't have really any issues with it. And I think it was really like fast, flexible, and I think it's pretty good enough for this project. Right. Now, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, maybe some people think that, hey, just because MongoDB doesn't, you know, it's as a schemaless database, you might get yourself into trouble. Did you run into any pitfalls there? Or did you find yourself like basically creating your own schemas, but at the application level? Like, okay, this is my uh, user table or whatever they call it in MongoDB, like a collection or something like that. Like if you have a couple of predefined fields that need to be there, like a name and an email address and other things, did you find yourself having to like flesh that out at the app level? Um, well, actually, that's correct. I, I had to create some specific fields that I at the app level. But um, at the same time, this uh, flexibility of MongoDB was really important because sometimes the clients, they ask me to add specific fields to specific um, entities or classes. And I really didn't have to do much on the back end side or any uh, or have to do through some complex migrations or anything because just MongoDB you can throw anything at it and it'll just accept it <laughs> it's really I think it was like an advantage in my case yeah no I can see that for sure like I mean database migrations is, is one of the trickier problems to solve for when you're deploying stuff especially if it's like to multiple servers right even to one is uh, complicated enough because sometimes it's like well this migration needs to run for five seconds or five minutes it's like you need to do different things based on that mm -hmm. yeah exactly so as for this MongoDB setup, uh, which Python library do you use to connect to it? Um, I'm using Mongo Engine, and I think Mongo Engine is just a wrapper to PyMongo. I think it's pretty good. And it's very similar to the SQL Alchemy. So, so as for this application itself, is this just like a, a single monolithic app, or do you have it broken up into a couple of different services? Also, do you happen to use uh, Flask Blueprints? Um, yes, uh, it, it's a single uh, it's a single app, and I don't use any microservices. And I, I use uh, Blueprints. As I said, um, this uh, framework I created is using Blueprints by default because it's, uh, it makes it easy to organize your application files and it allows, it allows you to do like a larger scale project. So Yeah, I really, really love the Blueprints model. It's like it works very well if you have nothing but like, you know, one or two pages. But at the same time, you know, even if you have a massive site, like 20,000 lines of code, you, you know, you can easily just break out 20 different blueprints and you know where to go when you need to edit like that specific feature. Did you find that to be true with your app as well? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, and um, yeah, I mean, uh, blueprints are really helpful. And like you said, um, you can easily find what you're looking for really fast. So now they say, you know, in computer science or software development, naming things is one of the hardest problems. Do you want maybe want to rattle off a couple of blueprint names that you've created for this project? Um, well, the way I like to structure my projects is it's not really a, extremely complicated, but I like to have a blueprint for public pages and I like to have a blueprint for uh, administrative pages. So I create normally two blueprints, one for the public interface, which are pages accessed publicly. And the admin blueprint is where the management and uh, all the backend stuff will be happening and the, the restricted access so the nice thing about building this uh, private blueprint is that you can just uh, hook like a decorator on the before request, and then you can have all your blueprint protected with the 
with a proper permission system so you can set your roles you can yeah so that's pretty much it right so did you find yourself spending a lot of time creating a custom admin then to manage the back end um i actually I, I i became really fast building custom backends normally this is the most time consuming part of building applications but uh, i've been focused on this kind of tasks for a while and i was really not happy with all the modules or libraries that already exist like uh, for example the flask admin or i mean even the Frameworks like Django, they come with really a nice admin interface and... Um, but I, I, I spend a lot of time like reading about their documentation and if you want to customize them, you don't really have this amount of control and flexibility. So eventually I decided that those admin backends, they are better if, if, if we create them ourselves and you have full control over the display, over the widgets and what you load as in like uh, JavaScript, CSS and... You have full control over the experience of the backend. And I think right. I became pretty fast at it. So yeah, it didn't take much time. Nice. Yeah, it sounds like in this app, there's probably like, you know, there's two levels of backends, right? There's like the backend for your customer, you know, using that CRM. And then there's you as like managing, you know, your multiple tenants, like however you have this set up. Yeah, that's true. Um, I actually, yeah, I mean, th this is one of the things that I like about Flask that you can... You can actually create uh, specific permissions and roles on the fly and you can set them. I mean, that's when you develop things, you can, it's really easy to add like a set of permissions and then you can modify your application code so that those group of people or users, they can have specific access to specific things. So when I started, I had only two groups, maybe just the visitor or the anonymous users and I had the logged in users. And later on, I added more roles. I added roles for legal team for the marketing for the super admins who can do a lot of things and it was really easy with this um, using flask security and adding this small decorator here and there and creating roles on the fly right so i haven't used flask security firsthand does it then combine authentication and authorization in one package yeah exactly it's actually a collection of uh, libraries that is uh, that offers um, a lot of flexibility and I think I created, I'm not sure. I mean, they have also some management commands where you can, it's like a Swiss army knife where you can use on the terminal to do things quickly. Some operations like creating users or assigning roles for specific things. I think uh, in my framework, I added extra commands, which uh, makes it easy to create like a different users and assign roles easily or disconnect roles from users. So that really helps as well. Nice. So we didn't get a chance to really cover this and you know, I kind of hinted at maybe multi-tenancy, but do you have that like full blown in your app? Like is each property or developer, you know, one of your clients, is it completely separate tenant on like their own subdomain? Like how is it set up? Mm, actually, I, it, it was set up differently. I didn't build this feature into the app because I think um, the way I deploy this app, I deploy like a different copy to for each uh, customer. The reason is because each company, they have their, I mean, it's not fully 100% automated. There are specific things that need still require manual work, but this is like a one-time work that can be done for each client. And then the project will be, that the system will fully automate the rest of the process. So the way I set it up, I just uh, set up a different uh, system for each client on a different virtual machine. And I don't okay. really share the 
data of the users on the same it's not a multi-tenant app like uh, normally most SaaS applications are so it's a bit different but i think there is an advantage in this setup i think like data is separated and different users different clients they have different contracts different agreements and so that's there is no point of sharing the code base across them i mean unless we just have a copy for each client separately right yeah no multi-tenancy is such a tricky thing and and, you know kind of as you hinted there it's very very specific to whatever app you're building like in your case, everyone has their own infrastructure. It sounds like everyone has their own database, their own VPS, their own, you know, whatever else that needs to run. Nobody is stepping over anyone else's data. Exactly. So the, like you said, this is one of the advantages that, um, and there are like even more advantages. So clients in different locations, like you can, you can deploy their systems in, in different regions based on their physical location. So they can have a better performance and plus the security, the protection, and if something goes down, other clients will still be able to use their system because it's not like a single point of failure. Right. And on that like note also, it's like if you had 10 different clients and one of them was very, 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 very busy, like soaking up all the resources, now the other nine in your case won't suffer because everyone has their own separate instances. Mm-hmm. True. That's exactly true. Yep. So earlier you mentioned that you are using Vue on the front end. Do you then have this application broke up where it's an API backend or do you just use Jinja template server side with like a little bit of view for like, you know, one or two different pages. Um, yeah, I, I use a, I use a mix of, uh, it's not like a full blown one single page app. I like to break it into like different uh, pages, but on, on each page I can, I use the, some of the nice uh, view features like auto reloading things. And uh, I try to utilize whatever is there for, for data binding, for example, refreshing the UI and changing the state of the application. So I still prefer to break it into some different pages while using some fancy uh, data binding stuff in view. The reason is because I, I mean, I, I tried different scenarios in uh, with applications and I think sometimes it's really, it makes more sense to break the application this way. First, it'll be more simple. Then I don't like to like uh, put all my assets and JavaScript load everything in, in in a single page and then handle the conditional loading of everything. I think it's just simpler. It's more readable. It's still performant and it's still nice and still has the cool feature that View has to offer. So, right. So it sounds like maybe you do mostly use Flask's routing for like different URL endpoints, but then maybe some of the pages that need it have just a View front end. That's true. Yeah. Correct. Is, is that how it's set up or do you have like, is it more the routing on the client side for some stuff? Um, well, I, I, I use routing the client side on some pages. So I use both of them. Like uh, in reality, I have a Flask routes and I have also view routes on some pages. So if, if it depends really on the page requirements, if I have some quick management tool on the page and I want to like have some dialogues to edit some specific things, I I just uh, use a front-end routing and on some other pages, I just uh, rely on Flask to serve the pages and yeah, so I use a mix. I, I don't really follow a specific uh, like a methodology because I think it really depends on your app. It depends on many things and my ultimate goal is always to get something that it works really nicely and it works without problems. So that's that's the ultimate goal 
uh, it's not really uh, that I have to use something because everyone is using it or because it's uh, mainly recommended. So I think it's uh, my primary goals are always the performance and the experience, the UX and the reliability of the system. Right. I like that. Just focus on the end result, not like the technology itself. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think uh, in recent years, many programmers and many people, they just follow technologies and because it's just trendy or because some big company, they introduced some library or something. And some of the people that I meet or I see, they, they don't even know, they don't even know why they are using these specific tools or they cannot justify them. I mean, they, they say it's because it's data binding, because it's training, it helps with a lot of things, but sometimes it's better to just focus on the problem. And if you can solve it with, in a simplest form, then you don't really need to complicate things. So yeah, I think maybe I'm a little bit old school with my methodologies. <laughs> right. Well, old school slash practical, pragmatic, let's say. Like it makes sense. <laughs> so going back to your app here, uh, for the backend parts that you know serve those view front ends, uh, which API library or libraries did you choose? Um, I didn't actually use an API library. I just built the APIs myself, the endpoints. And I think, I mean, you could say I use Mongo engine because it has some really nice, uh, like serializers that can, I mean, by using Mongo by default, it's, it's, it just speaks a JSON language. So it makes it really easy to generate JSON, uh, data points for your application and consume them. And yeah, I, sometimes I like those libraries that generate APIs and they have like, um, standard way of building the endpoints. But I think sometimes you can simply just build all the endpoints and they're really not so difficult to build and they do not take much time. So yeah, I prefer to build them myself because I can have like a better control on everything and the data on the field, how do I serialize them and how I can generate different formats of each JSON. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm a big fan of like just keeping it minimal as well. Like when I build APIs with Flask, I mean, I do use a couple of libraries together, but they're not like completely altering the Flask app. Like it's just like pulling in something like Flask Classful just for the routing part of the API and then Marshmallow for serializing stuff. But in your case, you're using MongoDB, so you kind of don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. So this application itself on the front end, do you have it managed by Webpack or something else? Um, so on the front end, I use a parcel bundler to bundle my assets. And I like it because it has like a it's a new way of uh, bundling your assets with a zero configurations. It's uh, really simple, and I have uh, uh, already wrote some scripts that help me bundle assets in a very efficient way. Okay, so for the for that asset bundling, uh, do you use also like ES six JavaScript that gets compiled down into ES five, or like do you use SAS for your CSS or no? Yes, I use uh, I use SAS. I use um, view single pay, uh, single uh, file components and i have uh, some extra npm libraries pre-installed i use some npm scripts to do things like auto prefixing and uh, uglifying the code and then producing the final uh cs built uh, for the css and everything right do you also use any type of library to like md5 hash your assets so you can cache them or no um i'm not using that actually the for the caching for uh, I have a, like a, sp a special way of versioning things. So I just attach a specific uh, version ID and I just change this version ID whenever I want to reload all the cache of the application. So it's just like oh. you can say it's just my own way of 
uh, handling the cache. Okay. So going back to like the front end versus the back end, do you know roughly maybe off the top of your head, like, like how much code do you have on each side? Like if you don't know exact numbers, is it like a 50-50 split or there's like a couple thousand lines on the front end and the back end, et cetera? Yeah, I would say pretty much they're kind of equal. So I have like uh, on the front as much as on the back end. I mean, I cannot, it's not based on the line count or like the, but I, it's mostly based on the work. So I have equal work on the front and the back end. Now, earlier you mentioned that you are using tools like Celery and, you know, probably Redis as a backend. Do you want to go over maybe some of the other components of your tech stack? Like, do you use Docker? Do you have any other uh, databases in, in the mix there, like Elasticsearch or whatever? Um, yeah, sure. So um, my tech stack is mostly, I, I don't use Docker. Uh, I really like it. And although I have a Dockerized version of the system, but I don't use Docker in production for a couple of reasons. Uh, for example, uh, the first reason is performance. Uh, I think uh, I benchmarked the system performance using Docker and versus the system running directly on the server, and I found there is a significant performance win. Uh, now, maybe I am not really that the biggest expert when it comes to Docker configurations, and maybe there are some ways to make it run in a with a better performance. But again, time is also like an important variable to me and I want to launch fast. So that's why I said maybe later on I can dockerize it and maybe optimize the performance in, in a more significant way. So that's why I don't use it. The rest of the stack, um, Nginx by default, I think it's the standard now web server for serving everything. Um, Redis, I use it for uh, caching. I use it for many things. It's really a great library. It's one of the most beautiful like software ever written. Uh, Celery, I use it for recurring tasks, for doing some maintenance, cleanup stuff, um, sending mail, notifications. Yeah, I have Let's Encrypt uh, to secure the for the certificate part. Right. And for Let's Encrypt there, do you just use CertBot or do you use one of the other tools? Yeah, I use CertBot to manage it and I renew it with Celery, I restart services. I use a lot of Ansible scripts. I actually automated a lot of my work using Ansible. So I have uh, scripts that help me deploy code, uh, things that help me roll different changes on the server, and especially when you have multiple servers. Right, yeah, we'll definitely get into the Ansible stuff in a bit. But uh, going back to the rest of your tech stack here, you mentioned Celery and doing like reoccurring tasks on a schedule. Uh, can you go over a couple of examples of you know when you use that feature? Yeah, sure. So um, normally the, the, the recurring tasks in Celery are things that require, like uh, I have uh, the recurring tasks mostly are maintenance tasks that I want to do some cleanup on some databases, some cleanup of some data or some temporary files. And plus I use it to renew the Let's Encrypt certificate and restart the services. Uh, I use it to call some bash scripts that also do some specific uh, tasks on the server or restart some specific services so yeah that's in roughly in general okay so leading in now into where you host all of this uh, which hosting provider did you choose um i i use different hosts for based on the clients and based on the location of the clients so since i automated most of the deployment tasks with ansible i really i can really deploy it on any server that with the with the same like operating system so I use Amazon Web Services. 
uh, because they have some data centers in the Middle East region, in the Bahrain specifically. So their response times are really incredible and their servers are famous. I mean, they have a really good infrastructure. They're a bit expensive though. Uh, for some other clients, I use Linode also. I have a really good experience with them and I like what I like about them that they have uh, they have like a firewall and uh, some DDoS protection on their networks uh, compared to DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is really flexible. Everyone knows them and they're really reasonable with the pricing. But I think they are so popular and their IP ranges are so popular. So once you start any server, you, your server starts getting a lot of uh, scans and attacks and everything. So, and I think, you know, they have a, maybe a better firewall and DDoS protection. So, so yeah, I, I use like many hosting providers with Ansible. You can really deploy your application anywhere and regardless of the infrastructure. So, but I choose them based on the region on on the requirements of the clients. Okay. So as for uh, on AWS, and maybe we can go over the Linode stuff too, like what type of box do you usually set this up on, like in terms of CPU and memory, like the specs on it? Um, I actually, uh, I, I decide based on the client requirements because I have uh, clients who have, like, for example, they have a small building with maybe 10 units or maybe 100 units. And I have other clients with big development property. They have uh, multiple buildings and they want to sell maybe thousands of units. So normally it really depends on the clients and the requirements. So that's why when I sell it, I normally first inquire about the requirements and how many users are there going to be to use the system. And based on that, I would I would say the system can start running on a maybe one GB RAM and with a maybe micro instance or like a small instance on a server. It's really it's really performant because Flask is really lightweight. And uh, yeah. but for larger clients, I would go with for a larger instance, so medium instance on Amazon, maybe or larger with four GB RAM or more. Right. Yeah. No, it's crazy at how efficient Flask is when it comes to memory usage, uh, even CPU as well. But yeah, you don't really need much memory at all, even to run a whole bunch of different Unicorn workers. Uh, speaking of which, do you use Unicorn or do you use USG or something else? Uh, yeah, I use USG because it's um, what I like about it, it has WebSockets built in. So since this application is using WebSockets, I have uh, I really prefer to use it because it's, it's it was really handy. It made it easy. I think we forgot to talk about this in the application. Yeah, no, it's it's all good. So what features of your app do you use WebSockets on? Uh, I use WebSockets to mainly to refresh the state of the sales across all devices. So when there are multiple sales agents are selling properties and someone sold this apartment, for example, to a client, every other agent who is using the app, he gets notified and the interface will automatically reload on his end and he can see that this apartment is now blocked. So he cannot sell it to someone by mistake. Like So it's a way to avoid conflicts. At the same time, the statistics and the state of the application and the building is reflected consistently across all devices. Nice. So you're kind of using that as like a push notification to broadcast the state of something to everyone else. Exactly. Uh, which library do you use for that or maybe even service uh, for the WebSocket service? Um, I, I use the library called uh, UWSGI WebSockets and it's uh, it's kind of a wrapper to this uh, WebSocket feature that's already included in this application server. So it was really handy. I have a I have a like a different version of the app written with the Flask Socket IO, which is 
pretty similar. They are really pretty much the same. But yeah, this library is really handy and you can just write uh, your WebSocket endpoints using decorators the same way you write the normal Flask routes. Nice. So do you have to spin up like a, a separate uWSGI process just for the WebSocket server or is it embedded into the main web server? It is embedded into the main server and that's why I really liked it because uh, normally, I mean, sometimes you need to spin like a different server to serve your WebSockets. But in this case, you just run the same server and it serves both sockets and... Uh, I had like a little bit of time configuring the SSL with WebSockets and doing this uh, proxy passing with Nginx. It took me a little bit of time, but it was not really very difficult. Right. And then it's one of those things where once you figure it out once, then you can just automate it with Ansible and then it's like a solved problem, kind of. Absolutely. By the way, speaking of which, uh, before we get into the Ansible stuff, which distro do you use on your servers? I like Ubuntu. I use Ubuntu 18 and recently I've I, like for new projects, I'm, I started to use the latest uh, 20. Right, so just sticking to the LTS releases? Yes. Nice. Yeah, in the same way. Can't really go wrong with Ubuntu or, you know, even Debian itself straight up is both very nice options. Exactly, yeah. They have like a really nice default and easy to write um, like a systemd. I think systemd now is used almost everywhere, but yeah, I mean... It's pretty intuitive, the way they structure the URLs and the tools they have. Right. So are you using systemd then to manage all of your processes that you run? Yes, I use systemd for each process. And I remember in the past, we, they had the upstart scripts, which used to be really simple. But now systemd is really like a good replacement. I think it's, a, it's becoming like a standard for all Linux distributions. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. I mean, those unit files, it's like you can get going with just a couple of lines of code and configuration and you're pretty much good to go. True, yeah. And with the nice about the nice thing about Ansible that you can, with the power of Jinja, you can just simply write those files and just deploy them. With the, like, uh, like I said, with right. a single command, you can have everything set up. Yeah, that's always fun too. When working with Ansible, Python-based, working with Flask and Python, also Python-based, but both use Jinja. So it's like you kind of sort of just know what you're doing without even knowing what you're doing. Uh, when you're getting into Ansible from the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I, that's what I like about it. So you can still write Python. You can use Python everywhere. And you can even create uh, like uh, shell commands and command line tools that you can use using the Python click and then maybe install them as a packages and use them in your uh, workflow. Yeah, although it's funny, I've been using Ansible for about, I don't even know now, seven years maybe. And I still haven't ever had to write an Ansible module for it. Like, it, you know, the YAML and Jinja has always been enough to basically accomplish anything I ever wanted to manage. Yeah, I think that's pretty much, I, I think I haven't written any modules as well. Now, going back to the setup, you know, since you are working with multiple cloud providers, uh, I would imagine then you're running your own instance of MongoDB, like, you know, not necessarily on the same server as the web server, but you're managing Mongo itself. You're not using like a, an external managed service for it. Yes, that's true. I prefer to run it on the same server rather than I, I tried I tested multiple uh, providers for like uh, NoSQL databases and stuff I, I think they are good sometimes sometimes I find them a little bit like um, problematic uh, sometimes they are more expensive as well uh, I don't know maybe because I have some uh, got some experience with the server administration and that database optimization and management I think it makes more sense that just install them like, uh, and just maintain them personally. 
Right. Yeah, as long as you're doing some type of automated backups and you know how to restore it, then you're sort of okay to manage it yourself if you're comfortable. Sure, yeah. That's exactly how I do it. I have some. Uh, I have also some Ansible scripts and some uh, automated uh, salary tasks that can that always do the backups and like similar tasks on the server. Right. So before we get into like backing up things, do you want to just go over what your deploy process looks like from start to finish? Like, let's say you're just hacking away on a new feature on the code base. Like, what is it step by step to go from your dev box to up and running live on one of your client servers? Um, so yeah, sure. Uh, so I use Git. Uh, it's a great tool. I think it's a standard, pretty standard tool now to track everything, all the changes on your application. So I set up normally uh, a bare repository, and I, I mean, I can use GitHub, but I prefer to set up the, my bare repository on my own servers as well. So I use Git to pull the codes. I develop features. I test everything, and then. I use Git as well for deployment, so I push. But I wrote some Ansible scripts that can do the whole deployment thing, restarting the services and the rollback in case something fails. But mainly, yeah, it's just a simple Git push command and then restarting services and, of course, testing. Right. So how do you manage that then? If you're deploying to, let's say, you have two clients, client A and client B, two different servers. You know, it doesn't matter where they run, but they're different servers. Like, do you have Ansible configuring? like the Git remote to push to for all of those different IPs or host names to push to? Yes, I have, uh, I created like a spe- special Ansible scripts that uh, I use uh, with a framework and those scripts, they just simply deploy with a single command. You can simply check the code, commit the code, push the code, restart services. And with Ansible, it's easy to roll the same change across multiple servers because you can just specify the host and then run your codes, like changes, whatever you can you can deploy code, you can change your, tweak your Nginx configurations. You can you can do a lot of things on multiple servers. So you can do it on one, then just uh, right. execute it on multiple servers at the same time. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an amazing feature of Ansible. Uh, but when it comes to your setup here with the Flask application, did you ever have a use case come up where, you know, one of your clients wanted to stick with version, let's say 1.0, but everyone else is okay to update to, let's say, version 1.5 or something like that? Do you have to deal with that where you're only really like get deploying to one client instead of everyone? Um, I didn't have this use, like this uh, scenario, but normally, I mean, it, it would be really simple because as I said, I have them separated and everyone has his own box, so I can simply upgrade other clients and keep the whoever wants the older version on their box. I think it's uh, it's pretty simple to handle because I'm not mixing the, I'm not using one code base for everyone. Right. And then at the Ansible level, it's like you can individually tweak like which tag version you want to go on each specific server. Sure. Yeah. You can tag them and you can just simply pass specific tags to run on specific servers or just ignore specific hosts. Yeah. Yeah. My only complaint with Ansible when it comes to using it to do actual like deployments itself is you just don't get that live feedback. Like when you do a get push, you know, through uh, let's say, you know, you know, uh, shell on a terminal, you know, you'll get from the Git remote on the remote server, like a live tail of what's happening on the server. But with Ansible, it's like, that's just not how it works. Like you have to wait until the entire command finishes or task finishes before you get the results back. So you may not get any output for, you know, potentially uh, like 30 seconds or a minute or even more, like depending on what you're doing, right? If you have to do like a pip install as part of your deploy process, do you find that to be sort of uh, also annoying or no? 
Uh, yeah, I think it's a it's a nicer if you would have like a progress indicator and you know exactly what's happening at the moment. But uh, yeah, normally I, I think it's a bit slower also. I mean, I used in the past, I used to write scripts with Fabric or with like different tools that are simply, they just simply execute uh, SSH command sequentially. But I think on the other side, like Ansible, they have a lot of uh, advantages and the way they built, because I, I remember that I read about the way it was designed so it's uh yeah i think it has many advantages in the way they handle the processes and the modules they have the way they use the the run code remotely so it's not just simply executing the code on the remote machine they do a lot of a lot more things like making sure that this code is executed and rolling back if it doesn't happen properly or something so yeah but i mean of course the progress i use the minus v flag to just maybe show more information but as you said some tasks they will still take time before they show any output so yeah there's that one add-on or plugin for ansible i always forget the name of it but it starts with an m but supposedly what it does it's supposed to like make the runtime of ansible a lot faster it's something like mitochondria or something like that like i'll link it to it in the show notes do you know what i'm talking about or no i've never heard about it yeah, I remember there was a benchmark where it was like they were showing two Ansible runs side by side and the one that was using the new plugin, it was like five or six times faster. And like in 99% use cases, there will be no negative effect of that. Like it'll still work the same. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So as for uh, part of your deploy process, how do you deal with things like secret management, you know, like API keys and email credentials, things like that? Um, I, I follow like a simple and standard way of storing these things. I store them as environment variables on the servers and I have written some Ansible scripts that I use on my local machine which makes it really easy to manage them so I can read write them from my manual using some simple commands on my own machine. So for example push this secret to the server or push that secret to that server and and yeah plus I, I have uh, I'm a little bit obsessed with the security and uh, like having everything protected properly so I have also as part of my Ansible scripts, a lot of configurations to protect the application. Configurations for Nginx, configuration for the application itself, rate limiting, for example, and some uh, other things like fail to ban configurations, specific configurations. Yeah, I think that's how right. I do it. Mm -hmm. So you have that rate limiting then at the Nginx level? I have them, yeah. And if, I mean, if necessary, because if I feel that something needs to be added as a, to, to the code itself, I might also add it to the application itself. I mean, you start with something with a basic uh, protection configuration and stuff. But if you, your server is under attack or someone's trying to play around, then sometimes you just have to go there and write some additional code. <laughs> right. Did you ever run into a case where you actually had to do that? Like, is that why you added that rate limiting in the first place? Yeah, exactly. I had uh, I I had uh, some incidents in the past where I used to work with some uh, big media companies, and they have some controversial, uh, say, website, uh, a news, a big news uh, website with a controversial content. So they used to have a lot of uh, attacks from different hackers, and that was actually the time where I learned a lot about the security and how to monitor the logs and how to find out what people are actually doing on the server and how are they trying to penetrate or like uh, take down some specific services. Yeah. Now that's a very, very hard problem to solve because it's like if you have everything hosted on one server and you know, you're 
like if you're running IP tables for your firewall or Nginx or whatever, if it's on that server and getting hammered, it's so hard. You, you can't really block that traffic because by the time you're in the position to block it, it's already too late. Like your server is under load. Yeah. Did, did you find that in practice or no? Yeah, I, I, I remember like incidents like that and especially DDoS attempts are really tricky. And I recall that um, sometimes we used to, yeah, I mean, to purchase even services from specific providers, they are specialized in protecting you from DDoS attackers or specific things. They are a bit expensive, but sometimes that's the only way to go. And what I like about yeah. Amazon that they have really, really some good firewalls and some good DDoS protection layers by default on their infrastructure. Yeah, that's a big win. Yeah, their expensive price is maybe justified because they have all this extra like firewalls and uh, protection tools. Have you ever thought of like throwing something like Cloudflare in front of all of that or no? Yeah, I actually use Cloudflare all the time. I use it uh, as part of my tech stack as well. So it's a free and it's uh, I think it's good. I know some people use it for performance. Uh, I consider it more of a security thing. So you protect your IP addresses by default. So a lot less attacks and people who can really try to directly inject your server with specific malicious things. I think you have to upgrade your account to a more like a pro version or more pay more to get like some really decent performance improvement. Right. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Like just having Cloudflare as a proxy to hide your IP is a, a very nice thing to have. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good, it's a good way to start hiding your IP. <laughs> so speaking of that, like, you know, malicious users, unexpected events, database backups and disaster recovery. Uh, do you want to walk us through how you do your database backups for Mongo? Um, sure. Yeah. So I have, uh, I have different uh, types of backups. I have set up some uh, policies on Amazon to do regular backups with intervals based on the client uh, requirement. So normally I discuss it with clients and how important is data. So some clients, they would go with like a few days backup. Some of them, they would require like a hourly backup. So based on that, I can set up the policies and with the, uh, Amazon, you can just back up the whole thing. So it's kind of a really safe way of backing things up. Uh, I have also some uh, salary tasks that do backups and uh, those tasks, they generate uh, database dump and file system uh, backup. Then they compress these files and they just push them to S3. And plus I do, I normally built into the application some easy interface for backing up everything. So I just click, have one click. Uh, it's accessed by super admin and you just download the full database and file system backup. Yeah, so nice. multiple ways of doing backups. I think it's pretty safe. Plus you have your own code base backup on your machine. and Right. Yeah, I think between your own machine and S3, you're in pretty good shape. Like S3 is pretty reliable at this point. Yeah, I think S3 is maybe one of the best tools ever created for hosting infinite amount of storage. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Now, you, you did mention that you do back up the entire file system. Do you have things on there that's really important to save around, like user uploads or anything like that? Um, for for this application specifically, there isn't really much. I mean, there are some generated documents, but they are the system generates them all the time. So you can always, they're like more like a computed document. So, so it's just like a code base is just a normal file backup, but there are, there isn't any user-generated content. I mean, it's there in the database, so it's kind of computed documents. 
right? So going back to uh, disaster recovery and maybe being a bit proactive about certain things, do you have any like alarms and alerts set up if things go wrong? Like if the CPU or memory goes a bit high in the server for X amount of time, you'll get emailed? Yeah, I have some, I've set up some scripts that monitor specific things on the server. Plus I have, uh, I, I use also the uptime robot and I, that does some ping the server every few minutes and uh, you get an email if something is going down or you feel the HTTP servers is down. So yeah, it's a mix yeah. of uh, my own scripts and plus, and yeah, normally, I mean, sometimes if, if something you feel that something is becoming slower or something, then you write some specific modules to monitor the specific part of the application. Right. Yeah. I'm a big fan of uptime robot. Like they're not a sponsor of the show, but I use them on my own stuff and uh, yeah, quite nice. Yeah. So what about things like uh, error reporting or logging and metrics? Do you use any services for those or no? Um, well, I actually rely on the standard um, logging. I like a standard Python logging module. Uh, for Nginx, I also rely on the standard logs. Sometimes I modify them a little bit with the formats and specific things so they can, uh, so they can integrate with fail to ban. So if someone is trying to access specific URLs or endpoints, I can block them if they're trying to scan or try to inject something, do some, some injections. I like to, in my application, I like to add a, like a small decorator that sends me email whenever some exception, specific exception happens. And I learned this uh, technique uh, during one of the EuroPython conferences, I think in Italy or somewhere. So I remember one guy, he was explaining how it's easy to set up this uh, mail notification when some exception happens. So it's, you can just add a small decorator and then it's really like a handy new feature that I added to all my applications. Yeah, no, that's very nice. I do the same thing, like basically, I don't know, like eight lines of code in one function and now any stack trace just gets emailed to me. So we didn't get a chance to talk about this one, but going over maybe some other tools that you might be using, uh, do people need to pay you like through credit card to sign up for the service? Like, do you use Stripe or anything like that or no? I'm not using it at the moment. No, it's just, uh, I'm, it's a little bit old fashioned way of selling. So it's just like, uh, I offer a, pro because uh, it's kind of a customized, it's kind of uh, based on each client requirement. So the first step, I take the requirements, I generate a quotation, then I would just invoice them. I mean, I use a, like a third party invoicing system, which has a Stripe integrated so they can pay me by credit card, but I don't really build that payment within the application itself. Right. That makes sense. And yeah, if you can avoid doing that, that's always uh, nice for sure. So what do you do then? Do you just like bill people for the year upfront so you don't need to invoice them every month? Well, actually it, it depends on the client, but normally I invoice them. Most of my clients, they would prefer like a recurring service for this because they keep, they have their contracts changing or their offers or their buildings or their plans. And many of them, they are not really, they don't have the expertise or they don't have the, the IT team to manage this uh, applications. So many of them, they would prefer like a recurring contract. So they use it as a monthly, they pay for a monthly retainer. And, and I assign like a specific set of hours for maintaining their systems or changing, doing the updates or changing changes that they require. Right. That makes sense. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building and deploying this app? Um, I think I would recommend like uh, one of the problems that I faced in the past that I used to get into some infinite loop of trying to get things to be better. This time I decided that, you know, being like seeking perfectionism is really sometimes it's not the best thing to do. And sometimes you just have to ship things faster. 
so I think the one of the best things to do when you're dealing with applications that you have to keep going, you have to keep building, you have to keep adding features. You should not let specific things stop you, even if you have a limited knowledge on something. Some people, they would leave and start learning for a long time. And I think one of the best decisions you can do is just to keep going with your application. Don't, don't get distracted. And the second thing I would say, everyone should not be afraid of pushing specific features because that was also one of my problems I faced in the past. So some client requests some big feature and this feature requires refactoring everything, maybe rewriting specific big parts. And you feel scared that, oh, this is like a really difficult feature. I have to rewrite this and that. And I think the best thing you can do is just just open your editor and start rewriting all the code. And you should not be afraid of doing really big things. I faced the same when I did some really uh, tricky deployments. But I mean, you should be really uh, not afraid of doing big things and just do it, you know, just uh, get a backup of everything and just try it. And then you'll be surprised that things can go well and things can work. And if something happens, then you can still fix it and you can still go on. The most important thing is just keep going on and just keep shipping features and push it to production. Just don't hang for long. Right. Yeah, no, I think that is a fantastic advice because, yeah, it's so easy to talk yourself into like remembering that one time out of like a million where something went wrong. So then you kind of just train yourself or, you know, you always go back to that one time where things didn't work and suddenly like you expect everything not to work, but most of the time it does work. So reacting to when it goes wrong instead of wondering what if is uh, a great way to, you know, not just code stuff, but I guess like live your whole entire life. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, f failure is always better than regret. So just go and do it. Fail. It's better than just uh, regretting that or sitting and thinking, OK, I'm going to learn first. I'm going to wait and until I, I can do this. So just go and do it. And then if you fail, then failure to me is like a progress. I consider it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that's a great way to end the show because it's not going to get better than that for uh, general advice. So Nadal, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Um, sure. I mean, I can be found on uh, my website is um, level09.com. My Twitter handle is, is the same to level09. My GitHub is level09 as well. So you can find me almost everywhere at uh, level09. Okay, cool. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.